I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2013. Coming up, can the microbial community in the gut affect testosterone levels? They are essential in teaching and training our immune systems to develop properly. They do an enormous amount for us. We need to behave in such a way to benefit them as well. And why CU scientist Rob Knight is backing the citizen science project called the American Gut. What this research could ultimately lead to is a world where no infectious disease goes undiagnosed. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Scientists from the University of Colorado in Boulder have just published two significant papers about tropospheric ozone, which means the ozone closest to the ground. News about atmospheric pollution is usually bad, but ground-level ozone pollution levels are actually getting better in some places. Using measurements taken over decades, an international team has learned that low-lying tropospheric ozone is flat or declining in North America, Western Europe, and Japan. Lead author Sam Oltmans from the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences explains the significance of their work. Emissions controls do make a difference. This study is probably the most comprehensive one that's been done looking on a global basis at uh, lower atmosphere ozone changes. But all the news isn't good. There are still some places where ozone is going up. In places like China, where the emissions are still growing, um, it's not clear what's happening. First of all, there aren't long-term measurements in China. A place like Japan, which controls, has strong controls on emissions, we're seeing slight declines. Um, we don't know whether, since they're very close to being to mainland China, downwind from China, um, we don't know whether that reflects sort of a combination of increasing ozone levels in China and decreasing levels in Japan itself. CU researcher David Henze and NASA's Kevin Bowman are working on tropospheric ozone too, but a bit higher up where ozone becomes a greenhouse gas. They use an instrument on the Oruf satellite to get ozone soundings. Ozone measured by depth in the atmosphere over relatively small areas. Then they use computer models to trace the greenhouse heating ozone back to where it came from. Hinsey says that they're learning how to hook together pollution control policy with how much warming the pollution could cause. In mapping out the impacts of emissions on the climate effects of tropospheric ozone, at the spatial resolution at which people are thinking about air quality policies, you know, in terms of uh, regions like uh, you know, megacities, to the state level, uh, we're, we're able to sort of start to think about these questions uh, simultaneously. The team is learning how differences in geography are playing part two. For example, ozone made in Denver can cause more heating than ozone from San Francisco. This means that ozone is produced in areas that are high in altitude, like Denver, um, or areas over continents where the meteorology is such that air is lifting a lot. Uh, are more likely to put ozone in a place where it has a largest effect on, on, on heating you know, uh, as a greenhouse gas. Sam Oltmans and his team published their research in the journal Atmospheric Environment in mid-December. Hinsey and Bowman published their study 
in geophysical research letters in late November. A new Danish study warns that it's time to stop talking about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and focus on the most dangerous kind of all, ugly cholesterol. In general, what people call cholesterol is actually protein-covered balls of fat that circulate in the blood. Most people have been taught to say the good kind is HDL cholesterol and the bad kind is LDL cholesterol. The Danish study adds to a growing body of research that indicates that ugly cholesterol is the worst one of all. Ugly cholesterol is a ball of LDL cholesterol, but it's very, very small. It's sometimes called small particle LDL or remnant-like particle cholesterol. In a study that followed 73,000 Danes, researchers discovered that those with high levels of the so-called ugly cholesterol suffered from heart attacks three times more often than other people. It's not clear whether the ugly cholesterol's very small size makes it dangerous or something else. But the Danish study warns that this kind of cholesterol is often overlooked. It urges that more people get tested for this ugliest part of cholesterol and take measures to reduce its impact on health. The new study is published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Tonight you can hear some hard, cold data about the kind of melting glaciers featured in the documentary Chasing Ice. That's because the Denver Cafe site tonight features Tad Pfeffer, from Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. Pfeffer will talk about getting sea level predictions right. He's known for using state-of-the-art satellites to measure the size of ice caps and glaciers. His calculations from last year indicated that ice melt around the world is raising sea levels less than some people have feared, but still plenty for concern. What we see is that the glaciers are losing about four-tenths of a millimeter per year, if you think of it in terms of how much they're adding to sea level. And the ice sheets, together with all of the glaciers that surround the ice sheets, about a millimeter per year of sea level is coming from the ice sheets plus the glaciers surrounding the ice sheets. Ted Pfeffer will give more details about melting ice and rising sea levels tonight at Denver's Cafe site. This free event starts at 6 p.m. at Denver's Wincop Brewery. tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. In the last 50 years, scientists have tracked an alarming increase in diseases, such as arthritis and multiple sclerosis, and asthma and allergies. These autoimmune diseases have been rising the fastest in modern communities, those with better access to Western diets, health care, and sanitation. As for why, some scientists suggest that Western life is too hygienic, and this increases the chance of autoimmune diseases. Now, a new study raises interesting possibilities about what's going on. Jane Danska is a research scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She's been working with scientists at CU Health Sciences in CU Boulder to study three things. One, a special strain of mice at high risk for autoimmune diabetes— Two, a sex hormone called testosterone. And three, 
microbes that live within the gut. Specifically, Danska's team studied a mouse that's bred to come down with type 1 diabetes. Danska says the hygiene of the mouse colonies influences how often they get diabetes. They get diabetes more often when they live someplace more clean. What has changed in our environment that has led to this increase in immune-mediated diseases over the past 50 years or so? It's not our genes that change that fast, so it must be environmental. Danska says the likelihood of diabetes in these diabetes-prone mice is also influenced by their sex. Male mice, who have higher levels of testosterone, have a 30 to 40 percent incidence of diabetes. Female mice, who have lower testosterone levels, have an 80 to 90 percent incidence of diabetes. Curious about how hygiene and sex hormones affect susceptibility in diabetes, Danska's research team had male mouse pups grow up in a completely sterile environment. No germs, no bacteria in their guts, none on their skin, none in their cages. Completely microbe-free. What we observed was the protection that males had relative to females in, for, for type 1 diabetes, the lower frequency of diabetes in the males, went, that went away when we put them in a sterile environment. So they were just as prone to the disease as the females were. They lost that benefit, and we immediately tested their testosterone levels. We were very surprised to see that in the absence of normal bacterial components of their gut, their testosterone levels were significantly lower than the same strain of mouse living with normal bacteria in their gut. Danska says that, to her knowledge, this is the first research to indicate a connection between an animal's microbes and its level of a sex hormone such as testosterone. Danska's team decided to take the research one step further. They reasoned that something about the microbial community in male mice seems to regulate their testosterone levels. And something about that male hormone, testosterone, or the microbes themselves, protects the male mouse from getting as much diabetes. So the researchers took fecal samples of gut microbes from adult male mice, and they orally inoculated female mouse pups with the gut microbes from an adult male. Among the female mice that did not get this microbial inoculation, roughly 90% went on to get diabetes. But among the females that got the microbial inoculation from the males, only about 30 to 40% of them ended up with diabetes, similar to their male counterparts. She adds that the females that got the male microbes did have higher testosterone levels. The male bacteria, when transferred into these females, provoked elevated levels of testosterone in the females that received that bacteria. But it was still far lower than you see in the males of the strain. Danska adds that it's possible that this same effect could have been achieved by injecting young female mice with testosterone, but that approach has many risks of harmful side effects. She says her team plans to keep investigating what it is about a one-time, early-on inoculation of microbes from another mouse's gut that helped female mice avoid getting type 1 diabetes. Danska adds that she's especially excited about what her research might reveal about other 
autoimmune diseases and sex differences. For instance, women are more prone to diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, thyroid conditions, and lupus than men are. She's hopeful that her research will shed light on these conditions and the role of healthy gut microbes. We're just really at the, at the beginning of our understanding of the profound and intimate way that we are living with bacteria in our bodies. Ultimately, the goal is to be partners with these bacteria. We are their partners. They help us to digest our food. They help to give us vitamins. They are, we now know over the past decade, essential in teaching and training our immune systems to develop properly. So they do an enormous amount for us. We need to behave in such a way to benefit them as well. Danska's research team, by the way, includes two Colorado scientists, Daniel Frank at University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora and Chuck Robertson at CU Boulder. This study about autoimmune diseases, gut microbes, and sex hormones was published last Thursday online in the journal Science. For more information and extended versions of these interviews, check our website, howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. On the theme of microbes, perhaps you've heard the news. There's now a documented cure for one of the most deadly cases of antibiotic resistance. The cure, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, addresses C. diff colitis, a bacterial infection that can invade your gut and lead to chronic diarrhea, vomiting, and even death. Antibiotics have often failed to stop C. diff, but the cure is high in yuck value because it involves infusing the intestinal tract of the person who's sick with fecal microbes from someone who's healthy. Amazingly, this stool transplant stops C. diff colitis most of the time, but no one can say for sure exactly why, which is one of the many reasons why CU scientist Rob Knight is backing the citizen science project called the American Gut. Rob Knight is one of the world's leaders in tracking the amazing world of microbes that live inside of us and also on us. Up next, Knight talks with How on Earth's Shelley Schlender about just what kinds of microbial samples you can collect for the American gut, what happens once you mail your sample in, and why this project is so important. Here's Shelley. It might seem unprprofessional to stick out your tongue, but CU's Rob Knight says he's doing it in the name of science. So I'll stick out my tongue, and the reason why the tongue sampling is interesting is uh, it's really easy to get an oral sample in most cases. So let me, let me just open this up. Knight opens a cellophane bag that holds two very long Q-tips. Anyone who enrolls in the American Gut Project and pays a modest donation fee gets a set of Q-tips just like these, along with directions for using them to sample microbes on your tongue because your mouth has far more bacteria or on your hands. Basically what you want to do is you want to swab all over the palm. Or your forehead. One thing that's important is you want to make sure that your hair is brushed away from your forehead. You can uh, get the sample hair. from yourself, from your dog, your cat, your child. You can even get microbes in your gut analyzed by using this swab on a bit of your own personal feces. And then for stool, uh, what you want to do is you want to swipe the Q-tip. To show how it's done, Rob Knight has brought in his 15-month-old daughter's diaper, a clean one. 
and to illustrate how to get a sample from it, he pours a bit of brown coffee onto the diaper. I just use coffee, just to give you an idea. I, I did think about bringing in the diaper that Alice produced this morning, but I decided against it at the last minute. So anyway, what you want to do is you want to take the swab, then just rub it on the material there. And what you can see is that there's a bit of brown material on the swab. You could use the same technique to get a bit of stool sample from some toilet paper. It's all very clearly explained in photos and easy instructions that are provided when you get your Q-tip swabs. What you'll be getting in the mail is one or more of these tubes, depending on how many kits you signed up for, and then an instructions sheet that shows you how to do the skin and the fecal sampling. These researchers want anyone to be able to sign up, follow the directions, and send in a microbial sample for the American Gut Project. One of the really exciting things about American Gut compared to traditional research on the microbiome is that, is that you, as a member of the public, can get involved in it directly. What's happened in the past, and this includes things like the Human Microbiome Project, which my lab was involved in in several capacities, and these large projects that are funded, uh, whether it's by a federal agency like NIH or by a private agency like the Gates Foundation, the study is always directed at a very specific thing, and so as a result there are all these exclusion criteria that mean that most people can't participate. So with American Gut we're taking a totally different approach where it's crowdsourced and it's crowdfunded. And so the exciting thing about that is that if you're interested in what's going on in your gut or some other body site, you have that ability to just get involved directly, sign up and send in your sample. And so this is really a very new way of, uh, of doing this kind of thing. This is a unique citizen project in other ways too. One big way is that you'll be able to see your personal results. In most studies, results are blinded, meaning only the researchers get to see just what data goes with who, and the research subjects themselves never get to know what their own sample showed. In the American Gut, each person who signs up will get details of their own data back. They'll be able to compare their data to a huge and growing database that shows data from other people who have signed up. At first, Knight emphasizes, you won't be able to officially diagnose anything with this information. So you should not participate if you believe that what you're going to get out of it is the diagnosis. You should participate if you have a fundamental interest in what microbes are, are living on and inside your body. And also if you want to help contribute to medical research that one day in the future might provide something useful either, either for you or for other people. Here's what happens with a Q-tip swab that someone sends to the American Gut Project. I am Greg Humphrey. I am a professional research assistant for Rob Knight. You take a swab like this and you'll load it into a extraction tube. First, the Q-tip gets snipped off into a tiny beaker that's filled with fluid and shaken by a special shaking machine to release the microbes into the liquid for analysis. The liquid in that beaker has a wild ride ahead, traveling through a liquid robot that prepares the sample for further analysis, another machine that helps to basically put a DNA barcode on microbes in the sample, then on to another lab where that sample is taken to a machine that helps to sequence and identify just what kind of microbes are in it, plus how many of each were in the sample. That final machine looks like a college beer refrigerator, but scientists say it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> Uh, the hardware itself that, that, that's behind me is about uh, $600,000. Associated with this particular instrument, we have a supercomputer that we do a lot of the processing, uh, post-processing of the data on. So total for this particular 
uh, platform where it's about a million dollars. After that, there's quantitative analysis to track just what microbial families are involved in all this, generating lots of important data for the scientists, and also details for each person to have for themselves, thanks to their donation to the project of a sample and some funding. Rob Knight says that one day will come when this kind of data could make a major difference in how we diagnose an illness. What this research could ultimately lead to is a world where no infectious disease goes undiagnosed. Data about our microbial communities might also help us understand how to restore a healthy gut when it's been messed up. If you've got weeds in your garden, if you drive through a bulldozer and then you just hope that what goes back is what you want, I don't think that's going to be a very successful strategy, but that's effectively what we've been doing to our own microbes for the last century, and figuring out how to get away from that paradigm and, uh, and to promote the beneficial microbes I think is going to be really important. So, um, so projects that let us find out about all those beneficial microbes are really critical at the moment. The American gut represents a new kind of science for how on earth I'm Shelley Schlender. Thank you, Shelley, for that report. The deadline for enrolling in the American Gut Project is February 2nd. You can find out more on our website or use the website thehumanfoodproject.com then click on the tab that says American Gut. Shelley, uh, what about the ethical issues uh, surrounding this study? What if people, uh, what if there's something wrong with folks and they do or don't want to learn about it? Well, hi. Hi, Jim. The answer is that this was sent through the same internal review board that any kind of scientific study goes through, which has people that are going to be um, the, the test subjects of it. And the human review board approved this study. It's, a, it's very exciting because usually people don't get to know what their results are in a study. And this time people can get the information. Right, and and if you have a minor child or something like that, it's a normal, normal sort of uh, form. Yes, you have to sign off and approve the fact that you know that this information will be used. Now, you get the information about your own data, but it's not like your data is shared with the whole world then because it's private in terms of you're just a statistic point in the whole data scheme, but you get to know your own. Mm. How can other researchers leverage this, uh, this research? You know, Jim Pullen, they already are leveraging it in some ways because there are some big scientific groups and commercial and private and uh, research institutes that are investing in the American gut. Second Genome, a group out of California, has actually provided some scholarships so that more people can get this opportunity. Mm, very interesting. So, Joel and Shelley, would you guys participate? Well, I, I think I would. I think it'd be interesting. Uh, I usually do science. It'd be interesting to be studied. <laughs> well, actually, Jim and Joel, I already have. I've, I've signed up for this. In fact, I got a whole packet of these tests for my whole family, and they're looking forward to getting them as one of my Christmas presents to them. <laughs> well, I guess if I had the choice of taking it or leaving it, I guess I might be convinced to leave it, so to speak. <laughs> Well, and so that's the thing is that people can choose how much they want to be part of this or not. It's a it's a very exciting new kind of project. Yeah, citizen science, uh, very interesting stuff. Something maybe we could cover more here on how on earth and will in the future. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender, and the executive producer for this quarter was Shelley as well. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Fortet. 
Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. 